2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer hey. from Long Form. Hey. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Uh, who'd you have on the show this week? This week I talked to Jake Halpern, who is a reporter for, a writer for The New Yorker and New York Times Magazine. He's written for a lot of places. Uh, he has a new book out called Bad Paper, which is uh, the excuse that I was able to drag him down from New Haven to to talk to me. He's a pretty interesting guy. Yeah, because who, who wants to go from New Haven to New York? Exactly. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's leaf peeping time up there. They got that 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 delicious white pie. That's, that's the most like NPR SNL we've ever been. Yeah. Uh, we got some sponsors. Who you got, Aaron? Um, first up, we got Bonobos. Uh, if you're a person like me, you would like to buy all your clothes from one place and potentially a place that you could access from within your own house or on your own phone. Bonobos is that place. They've got pants. Uh, they've got denim, chinos, shirts. I know some of those things overlapped with each other, but that's the kind of thing that you're going to get navigating the site. You're going to get everything you need. Plus, if you enter code LONGFORM at checkout, you're going to get 20% off your first order and support the show. Shipping's totally free. You can return anything. So, Give it a shot today. That's bonobos.com, B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com. Aaron, you're the uh, kind of guy who likes to get all his clothes in one place. Are mm-hmm. you the kind of guy who likes to send an email newsletter? I do. Uh, well, not literally, but I, I, I you aspire. aspire. <laughs> <laughs> one, one day, you'll have a newsletter. If you do, uh, I have a suggestion for how you send that newsletter. Try Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people at MailChimp. And we thank them once again for their sponsorship. Can I, I want to quickly plug the new Atavist story. New story out in the Atavist. It's called The Devil Underground. It's by Nadia Drost. She spent two years researching a multiple murder at a gold mine in Colombia. It's pretty incredible reporting. I'd like to plug. Uh, plug off. I was just going to say, plug off. Um, yeah. Don't, just because just your finger's in that plug hole doesn't mean I'm not going to put my finger in the plug. I'm going to plug the fact that the long-form app has an exclusive uh, free look at another out of a story, um, The Trials of White Boy Rick. We got an incredible response to it yesterday. It's one of the most popular stories that's ever been in the app, which is pretty incredible in its own right because it's like 50,000 words. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are reading and finishing it, which I think says uh, something great about the story. So thanks to the the Atavist, thanks to Evan Hughes um, for letting us run this experiment. It's not going to be there forever, so get the app today and check it out. Two great stories, but for now, here's Evan with Jake Cowper. Welcome to the podcast, Thank you. Jake Halpern. I was thinking back to the first time that I feel like I was aware of your work, which came about, uh, I was either living in Hawaii or I was at a wedding in Hawaii, and uh, this guy, Christian Manders, who's an incredible uh, person, was yeah. there, and he was going to one of the hotels, or it's like a residence of a guy who lives by the volcano that you had written about. And yeah. he was like, oh, my friend Jake wrote all these stories about all these crazy people who live uh, in the world's most dangerous places. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He did go visit Jack. There was this guy whose house was surrounded by lava on all sides, and um, I spent two weeks living with him. And the guy 
ran his house as a bed and breakfast, though he got very few visitors. Yeah, it was like he picked you up on a motorcycle yeah. to like get across the lava to his home. Yes, he did. It was funny. I went there to write for the book, and I... Because at the time I was, I picked five places that were dangerous locales, and I lived with someone in their house. Um, that was the most spectacular. You could you could see the lava at night, basically coming down on both sides of his house, and he was on what the Hawaiians call a kapuka, which is an island of greenery surrounded by molten lava. Uh-huh. And at the day it was a little hard to see, but at night it was spectacular. It was cataclysmic. You could see these red rivers converging off his front deck, and. Occasionally, you can also hear explosions of trees. So then I, I remember like looking up a bunch of your other stuff, and you'd written stories for the New Republic about these these homes. And I, the thing I've always wanted to ask you is, as a you know, I was also like a freelance writer. I was trying to f- figure things out and get assignments, and it, it felt like you'd really figured it out. Like as a person not knowing you, I was like, this guy's figured it out. Like he worked in New Republic and then he's doing like these stories where they, he gets to go all of these amazing places. Now he's turning it into a book. And I kind of want to go back and know, uh, did you feel like you had it figured it out? And, and also a little bit about how you got to that point of being at the New Republic to begin with. Right. Um, the short answer is no, I did not at all feel like I had it figured out. I thought about going to law school at one point, like who doesn't, and um, had like was trying to forestall that very much, and applied to this New Republic internship, and got it, but it was never a great fit for me. You know, it's a, a political magazine. You weren't a junkie. I was junkie not a political type. junkie. I didn't. I mean, I never. I always felt like it was a stretch. And in fact, at the end of that year, there were three of us who were basically fact checkers, and their one job opened up, and I didn't get it, and I felt very bummed out about that. I would have liked to like have the job, but it was not getting that job that led me to think about doing this book and I met a literary agent and had said like I have this I had written like one or two stories very short stories for the New Republic about crazy locales where people were living Uh Um, and were those things you did kind of like in your off time yeah basically like vacation time like I no one was gonna like send the fact checker intern water cooler dude which is what I was so I went down yeah on my one week of vacation to this town Princeville North Carolina and I had a lot more material, you know, than one page would kind of bear. So I wrote this proposal up. It was funny. James Woods was the literary critic there at the time. And he very kindly said, uh, write something up and I'll take a look at it. And I wrote it up like, you know, and nothing like that. That never turned into anything. But once I had it written up, I just thought, well, I'll send this around. And I got this literary agent who said there could be a book here. So when I left the New Republic without a job... I thought like, okay, like I'll give this a go. So I worked at an after school program in Boston with like inner city kids and Uh kind of pieced it together Uh while I was working on this proposal. And then the proposal sold into a book and I was like kind of freaked out because I'd never written anything more than a page and now I was on the hook for a book. Um, So it was funny. I look back on that experience and it it seems like you could look at it and see that's a dream come true. And I I went to Hawaii, to the volcano, went to this crazy old military base in Alaska and I was doing what you think what I always thought I wanted to do but I think I was stressed because I had taken money for this book and and I just didn't have a lot of confidence that I knew what I was doing but somehow like it it worked out like I wrote the book it reads like you're having great adventures (laughs) I know I think that there was also almost like a disillusionment like I realized that I had read this book by Tony Horowitz called Baghdad Without a Map. And there's almost a kind of, you know, Mark Twain has done it too, where there's this, there's a tone you strike as this kind of happy-go-lucky, self-deprecating traveler. And these are just your adventures. And I think when I actually set out to write the book, I realized that it was kind of a, a hoax. It was a little bit of a, of, 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 of a deceit, you know, that maybe other guys could do it. But for me, at least, I realized that if you were going to get good material, it meant you just had to hustle and stress about all the pieces you needed and that, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. I think, I guess maybe that is obvious, but at the time I was like, wow, this is like really hard work. And I thought this was going to be like, uh, you know, living on a volcano and just like, I don't know, smoking joints with the volcano guy. Yeah, you know? just write down your musings. <laughs> yes, exactly. It. Just sell books. That's how it works. So when you say it sort of felt like initially, like uh, this is what I always wanted, How f- how far does that go back in terms of, what you always wanted or what you wanted to do? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So 
I think that the most clear point of origin is my sophomore year of college, I had this friend, Ted Guessing, and he wanted to go to Prague. This would have been 95, I guess. And um, we had talked about it. And then one day he was just like, today's the day we have to like unenroll from college to do it because you weren't going to do, there was not really a study abroad program at the time. So I just said, okay, on an impulse, let's go to Prague. So we la- we kind of technically unenrolled from, from Yale where we were and went over and I spent six months in Prague. So I had this idea I was going to write a screenplay, which, and just to show you just how cliched this notion was, my first night in Prague, I go out to a bar I'm sitting at the bar with Ted and this, I start talking to this beautiful Swedish girl and she says, um, you're American? I said, yes. She says, let me guess. She kind of looks at me and says, you're writing a screenplay, aren't you? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And then she just laughed and turned her back. I didn't know that moment. I realized, oh my, I really am <laughs> cliche <You're>, here. <laughs> but but that uh, was a time, was that still the time when there were a lot of, it was cheap enough? Yeah, that was. That, that was were, the golden, I mean, people yeah. were saying it was like Hemingway at Paris in the 20s. Yeah, there were a lot of people. In fact, yeah, the, the apartment where we lived in, we, there had been a lot of transients passing through and there was just like a, a drawer with all these half-finished manuscripts of the guys that had lived there before. I mean, it was really, wow. it was, I must have caught the tail end of it, but it was a well-trod path. But something good did come from all this, which was that at some point, I remembered that the story of kind of family lore that I had a great uncle who was a Holocaust survivor who had survived because his best friend from childhood was a Catholic kid hid him uh, initially under his bed and then built a secret room in the basement of the house and saved him. And they mm. living in this secret room, he survived the war. So I knew it took place in Bratislava. And so I thought like, well, why don't I try to track this down? So I talked to my great uncle and I got the name of the street and the address where his friend used to live. And I flew to Bratislava and, but all the street names had changed from when the Soviets came in and then afterwards. And finally, I find this house uh, where this guy lived and I ring the doorbell and nothing. The doorbell was broken, I think. And this little kid comes by on a bike and he says in in Slovak, like, you're looking for him, for Mr. Pastor. And he takes a rock and chucks it up on the roof and, and then the door opens up and this old guy comes out. And this turns out to be my friend who saved his life. And he shows me the room where they, was, they were hidden in the bed under which and the whole story. Same, same house. house. Starts recounting all the close calls with Slovak Gestapo. And that was kind of it. Like he, I went back and interviewed my great uncle and then I went back to Slovakia one more time. This is all during my college time. Mm-hmm. And I made this documentary film. And I haven't seen the film in a long time. I don't know how it would hold up. It might be very bad. But the point was like I, I had kind of had the fever at that point. I felt, I felt like this is powerful stuff telling stories like this and in the adventure and I did actually kind of enjoy that one probably more than the first book I wrote and 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 after that I think there was some sense that I wanted to tell stories but I just didn't know what the 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 way to do it was and really. was it more in the the discovering and unraveling like the guy coming out and then yeah. sitting down with him or did you actually when you you made the documentary and then show it to people was it more about giving the story to other people spreading it in some way. No, it's an important distinction. In truth, I don't think I ever felt the magic when I saw it. I mean, first of all, I don't think like my cinematography was that great and and I don't know how well I put it together, but the for me the magic has always been in that moment when you feel like you've got something powerful and you know that it's a great that it potentially is a great story if you can tell it right. The moment where he answers the door, um, when he shows me the old room where they hid there's something electric about those moments, and 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 that rings true to today too. I mean, I think, you know, right now I'm out here peddling this book, and we can talk about it later. And the yeah. peddling of the book kind of wears you down, um, <laughs> you know, as you can imagine. And I think that the only way to kind of re-energize yourself is to find yourself back in that moment where all of a sudden you feel like, wow, by luck or by hard work or some combination of the two, you find your way into this moment where there's an amazing story here and it kind of crackles. And and I, 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 I had a taste of that in that moment, not so much in the screening, but in the moment. And then ever since then, it's been trying to find that moment again and again. So fast forward back to, you know, you, you leave the New Republic, you, you go to work on the book. Did that book sort of launch you into feeling like this is a job? I could make a living at this? 
Yeah, it did. It did give me that feeling, but I think that it was something of an illusion, really, because I think I naively thought once I had a book that came out and it was reviewed reasonably well that I would just like a career would kind of just come together. And I realized that was not the case, that I was going to have to hustle a lot. And I actually quickly agreed to write another book, which is my second book, Fame Junkies. And that was that was born out of this real, this panic that, oh, what am I going to do? In fact, I kind of, yeah, it was, it, was, it was that need to kind of shore up some income and feel that I had some sort of certainty there. And I paid the price for that in that I wrote that book once and then had to throw out 75% of it and then reread it again and totally changed the subject for it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It was, that was a painful, painful book to write. And partly just because I signed a contract to write the book and I didn't really know what the book was about. And I, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but that's okay for a second. Yeah. And then when I got to my third nonfiction book, which is the one that I have out now, Bad Paper, there is some kind of continuity here. I had this... I had this moment that had that same kind of electricity when I met the two main characters, this Mm -hmm. banker and this bank robber. And my agent was like, let's sell this. This is going to be, this could be a great book. And I remembered that, that experience with the second book where I had signed on with, before I really had my, my grasp of what it was. And I said, no. So with this book, I wrote half of it on spec. I wrote like a full 35,000 words without a dime. Um, And I, was basically about to go broke when I realized, like, all right, like, I think it's going to happen. Let's sell this so I can get some money. So those experiences each kind of informed one another. Hey, uh, this is your other host, Aaron Lammer, with a quick word from our sponsor, Bonobos. If you're anything like me, you have a basic need for clothes that fit and look good. Um, But you don't like the hassles of shopping going lots of different places, filling out your credit cards and all kinds of forms. So I was excited when I found Bonobos, which is a place where I can get pretty much all the clothes I want. Um, They're at bonobos.com. And if you go there, you're going to find everything from really nicely fitting chinos, denim, shirts, hats, outerwear. Um, It's enough to put together a great outfit. So I'm going to encourage you to visit Bonobos today and you're going to save on your first order with an exclusive offer for long form listeners. You're going to put in code long form when you're checking out and you're going to get 20% off your first order. Plus all the time, shipping's free. You can return anything, no questions asked. So there's no reason to not just Get a few things, see if they fit you, and if you don't like them, send them on back. It's quite easy. Bonobos.com, that's B-O-N-O-B-O-S.com, because you deserve to look your best, and these guys are going to help you do it. Okay, here is Evan back with Jake Halpern. Just to, to go back to uh, to Fame Junkies for a second, so how did that even become your second book. I mean, it didn't seem like, like you even talk about it at some part of the book or in the publicity or somewhere I read that it was like, this is not a world that I know about or come from. Yeah. And then suddenly you were like in the midst of it. Right. Um, There was a few different things that kind of led me into it. One of which was I wrote this New Yorker story about a rapper whose name is Jaquan. He had this big hit out a bunch of years ago called Tipsy. And, um, Around the time that I had got was getting into Fame Junkies, I was writing that story, and I thought maybe even that that narrative would support a book, but it really didn't. the The story was it was a cool story. Basically, this kid it's kind of a reverse Gatsby. He's yeah. living a very secure, not exactly well off, but solidly middle class life in the suburbs of St. Louis with a mother who really cares for him, and he runs away into the inner city and passes him off self off as a street orphan lives in abandoned cars and writes his raps by the supposedly by the light of a cigarette lighter and gets yeah. and and gets discovered by a manager who then adopts him and doesn't tell his never says anything about having a mom and uh, he plays it he works it i mean he's he's kind of a genius and so can i just say that the most amazing scene in that this opening scene in that story is just like this gigantic club in panama city where the song is playing and the, it's just like a capsulated scene of like now we're going to illustrate how big this song is and it's it's and then you never go back there and it's like this fantastic way to kick off that story i just love that imagine you like flying to panama city and you're like i'm gonna go to the worst club 
that I could possibly go to <laughs> and get the scene. That's totally true. What happened with that is I wrote the piece and it was set to run without that scene. It mm. was just the story of this kid rapper and someone, one of the editors at the New Yorker was like, you know, you need a scene in the club where uh, the song is big. So it's like, you know, three days to go. I flew down to spring break. I was too old to enjoy it and went to like the right, the absolute cheesiest club and interviewed like kids getting down to the song. Um, but um, so I thought that maybe that narrative would support a book. Yeah. Um, and it was the kind of story that I like. It was it was kind of a gritty story and it had this kind of like unexpected tur- twists and turns. But it turns out it really wasn't going to hold up a whole book. And so then I began kind of grappling around in a somewhat panicked way to find something else that was like close enough to the same subject matter that I could give to the publisher. And in the end, I did find some narratives that I liked, but I kind of promised myself after that whole experience that I was going to be careful about agreeing to another book before I really kind of had a deep sense that this was a narrative that was strong enough to support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you still feel good about the final product or do you feel like I just can't I like for this to be over? That's interesting. I mean, when I step back, I'm able to say, yeah. And there was one really kind of crazy narrative that I follow with all these talent schools that totally capitalize on and, and, and reap profits from these kids hoping to become famous. And I follow them out to this gated community community in Los Angeles where it's inhabited entirely by aspiring child actors. Yeah, weird. It was a crazy narrative, but I think that the reason that was hard for me was the whole process felt like it was I was scrambling to come up with something, you know. Um, and so when it was done, I think it was just like relief and I don't think I enjoyed it. Whereas now, especially with this, with my most recent book where I really was so much more deliberate, I think I was able to enjoy the process so much more. In fact, when I was thinking about writing Bad Paper, I was hesitant because I was remembering like how stressed I was the previous time. Yeah. But then I kind of said, you know, this is different. I've written half the book and it's on. And when I was writing it, the narrative was like, it, it was, it was so different. I wasn't scrambling for narrative. These guys, the banker and the bank robber. And it was so, and I just thought, wow, this is, I was like riding a wave. It was a totally different experience. So how did you find this story, the story that's in the current book? Cause I, cause there was a New Yorker piece, but the New Yorker piece was actually, it's, it was a while ago. Yeah. So what happened was this is a this is a, there's a few funny little things here. So I had this idea about doing a story about a debt collector from Buffalo. So I'm from Buffalo and I've written about Buffalo a lot on and off over the years. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that Buffalo was the center of this world where debt was bought, sold and collected on. So basically banks can't collect on a credit card bill. They'll sell it off for pennies on the dollar to debt buyers. And then that the top debt buyer will collect all the accounts it can and then whatever it can't collect on, it sells to the next guy. And then they collect and then sell the scraps. And it makes its way down to the bottom of the food chain. And so I had this idea, what if I did a profile of a debt collector at the very bottom of the food chain, buying the debt or what they call the paper that's the most beaten up, chewed up, and like how do you make, and and often for poor people that are trying to get into this business or that's the only paper they can buy. So the whole idea kind of appealed to me. So I contacted my editor at uh, The New Yorker, Daniel Zaleski and I said, here's my idea. And I kind of, you know, you have to be very confident in a pitch. So I was like, I'm a Buffalo boy. Like people are going to talk to me, you know, like I went to high school with these sorts of guys, which was true. I I just wanted to test the water. And he wrote back and said, okay, uh, Remnick green lighted it 5,000 words. When can you get copy? So I was like, fuck. I wanted to kind of maintain that confident face. So, so you I didn't said, have the people. I didn't have shit. It was theoretical. I was idea. totally theoretical. I had read an AP story. I mean, this was like really <laughs> like I had nothing. And, but I still kind of held kind of onto this naive belief that I was a Buffalo boy and guys would talk to me. So I started calling everyone I knew in Buffalo and I arranged a visit and I got nothing. And then I got back and I did the same thing again, called everyone I knew, set up a few like breakfasts, you know, and lunches and drinks, second visit, nothing. So now I'm like starting to panic. So I send, I got on Facebook, which I'm not a big Facebooker, but I got on Facebook and I send messages to everyone that I went to high school with and everyone that my little brother went to high school with, basically begging them, does anyone know anyone in collections who will talk to me? And this one guy... Uh, says, my brother's in collections. 
and he went. You you weren't together in school, but we did go to high school with you. And I called this guy up. This his name is Jimmy, and he said, "Look, man, I don't know how much longer I'm gonna be in business. If you can get down here tomorrow, I'll give you the straight scoop." So I'm like, "Boom! Get on a plane, go back to Buffalo." And then there's where the luck came in. I crossed over from where my parents live on the west side to the east side of Buffalo, which is a very meaningful racial and class divide. Yeah, there's a lot about that in the in the book. Yeah, and get over to this part of Buffalo that I really hadn't spent that much time in, go up the stairs, and Jimmy just starts talking about the business, about how it's like drugs, about how you only know the supplier of paper directly above you. You don't know the guy who supplies him, and it's like he doesn't know any of the cartels in Mexico. He just, he just knows the guy above him, and they break it down and down, and he's the guy the lowest on the street who buying the smallest amounts of paper. And he, he's speaking eloquently about this in this kind of amazing Buffalo East Side dialect, and I just say, look, man, can I turn on my tape recorder because it's the only way I'm going to get this. And he says, yeah. And then he just takes it up a notch and he just, for five days, just is just talking. Um, <laughs> church. The, he takes me to church. He takes me to his workplace, takes me home. And he's just laying it all out. And that is one of those moments. Talk yeah, about electric moment. That is it. Like, I know there's a moment where we're in the parking lot behind his his his. A collection agency at like 11 p.m. on a Thursday night and he knows he's not going to make payroll. In fact, he knows he's not going to be able to take his kids to see Shrek the next day. And he breaks down. He's big, tough guy, former cocaine dealer, and he just starts sobbing. And, you know, you're feeling obviously some pathos and you're also feeling like, oh my God, this story is so powerful. And at that point when I get home... There's nothing to do except just I have about 150 pages of transcript mm-hmm. and it's just cut it up. I mean, like I, there's no I wrote that thing really quickly because like, there wasn't much for me to do other than just kind of like describe the scenes in which he was in. Uh huh. Like he told the story. Basically. He told the story. He yeah. did all my work for me. Finding him was the moment. So this leads to the book because afterwards we get a call from um, Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's company, saying they want to try to turn this into an HBO show a la The Wire. And would I go it's back... It's got some wire, wire-ish elements yeah, it's got, to it. It's got some wire to it. And I, I, I have to say, I was surprised. I didn't I didn't see it at first. Like, I wouldn't... Some stories you write, and you're like, maybe, but this one, not so much. I just thought it it was too, mu- too much about poverty, but they, they thought so. So will you go back to Buffalo with the screenwriter, this uh, short story writer, Wells Tower, and will you show him around? And I said, yes, no problem. We'll go – if Wells is willing to stay at my parents' house, we can – we can, you know, so it's like dead of winter, <laughs> me and Wells Tower. And, and I start calling all – remember, if you remember, no one wanted to talk to me for the story. Right. So I start going down the list. We, hey, remember me? Yeah, um, I'm now working with Brad Pitt's production company to put together an HBO series. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk. It actually was a crazy experience, like just to like whoever goes back to a story they write and and that happens to. And one guy who's this banker, Aaron Siegel, says, yes, I'll meet with you and I want you to meet someone else. My business partner who's a former armed robber uh, named Brandon Wilson, who I'm going to have come into town and you, me, and the screenwriter and Brandon, we're all going to have dinner. It's fascinating, like. First of all, the gap between the like people who want to be in a New Yorker story and the people who want to be in a uh, maybe in a Brad Pitt series or or what have you. Totally. And and if it wasn't for Brad Pitt, I never would have met these guys. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say, but it's true. So we get to dinner, and it's at this old Buffalo establishment, throwback to like when it was a wealthy city, big uh, a gentleman's club. And um, we go up. The gentleman's club, not a not a strip club, but no, like yes, a exactly. stuffy, like yeah, 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 not not like a men. No, like no, a, no women with like no things. peppermint rhino. No, right. it was just like it looked like where I went to college, like a social club. Or yes. Something. So we get up to this private room, and these guys start interacting. Aaron and Brandon. So Aaron is the banker, and he's saying basically telling the screenwriter, he's like, "Look, here's the deal." I bought a billion and a half dollars worth of unpaid credit card debt for pennies on the dollar, but I quickly realized that in this fairly unregulated marketplace that I couldn't rely on the courts and I couldn't rely on the state attorney general and I couldn't rely on the authorities to always to protect my investment. 
So I kind of teamed up with this guy. And this guy was Brandon, who was this former armed robber who offered two services. One was he was like the tough guy fixer. So when stuff went wrong with, you know, crooks in the business, like Brandon could be his regulator, basically. And then also Brandon found paper. He would find these, by paper, I mean debt. He would find this, these portfolios of debt that had been like in a call center in Brazil untouched for five years and he would like sniff it out and buy it cheap and then deliver it and then it would just pay off handsomely. So these guys are talking and then they tell the story that becomes kind of the underpinning of this book, which is that they get ripped off. Their debt gets stolen. Yeah. And that Brandon, the former armed robber, has to go down with a bunch of guys in a car with guns and retrieve or put a stop to these these rogue collectors who are collecting on Aaron's debt. So as this story is being told, the screenwriter is kind of taking notes, whatever. He he was in a struggle. By the way, Wells Tower. Yeah, Wells Tower. <laughs> Wells Tower is taking notes and Wells is like, yeah, this is good fodder. And Wells kind of like wraps up his thing. And I'm like, guys, would you consider doing a nonfiction companion version to the HBO series? Because I really think the true story here is pretty amazing. And that's basically what did it was that Wells would be doing some reporting research for his pilot. And I would just say, um, I'm doing a nonfiction side version of this. It's like the true stories that inspired it. Will you talk to me? Uh-huh. And that opened that opened all the doors. And I, I was clear there was nothing like I made it absolutely clear. I'm a journalist. This is a true story. But I think that what happened was is the Brad Pitt and the HBO got them talking and once they started talking which is always the case and not always but often the case once you start talking then you're you're good yeah. and then they just don't stop yeah and how long did that sort of like ride along portion of it how long did that go like did you go all the way to the end calling up new people and saying like hey we got this Brad Pitt thing going on and I'm also writing a book or at a certain point did it transition into hey I'm just writing this book right there was some of me saying like you know, you can check out this and I'm, there's an HBO project and I'm doing this nonfiction book. But actually what started happening was, is Brandon, who's the former armed robber, started doing that for me. We would go places together. Like we went out to Las Vegas to this place, this convention where all this paper is, is being bought and sold for pennies on the dollar. And we're going to the casino and these parties. And Brandon would just say, this guy here. Yeah, they're, you know, they're making an HBO series off his story and now he's doing a book about me. And, um, you know, all anyone heard was HBO. But I it got to the point where Brandon was like my publicist. Everyone, he was telling everyone that, like, this is the guy that the HBO thing is, is, is rotating around. And and so I would make sure they understood, like, look, this is nonfiction. And, and, and then folks would talk. And it was that's how it worked. And in the end, I mean, the HBO thing kind of stalled. But in any case, as the, the HBO thing kind of fell through, it didn't really matter to me. You know, at that point, I basically had the book. Yeah, you like had your hooks into all the reporting already. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Vegas scene was one I was going to ask you about because that was exactly my question is like, what are they saying when you're hanging out? Because you're in the deals. They're sitting there talking about deals. Then you're in these parties where they're like getting like a little bit crazy. Yeah. At the end of the book, you have a long and... I thought very good explanation of sort of like why certain people were made anonymous or why certain people were used nicknames and those sorts of things. Yeah. And you talk about like, I recognize there's a danger of people embellishing their stories. And so I double check things. But did the HBO thing also factor into that? Because that always seems like a risk that if somebody knows or thinks you're a movie's going to be made out of this thing. Yeah. They might kind of like blow up their story in yeah. a way that sounds like it's great for TV or movies. That's not actually reality. Yeah. I think you have to be careful about that. Yeah. It's a similar version to how people will just often inflate themselves and kind of make themselves sound greater than they are. So. For example, with Brandon, I went to great lengths to get his prison records. I had to write the state of Massachusetts, and I got his prison records, which were 500 pages long. He, he got busted for all these different crimes, and in jail, they suspected he was selling drugs and strong-arming inmates, and he got in all these fights, and he was in saw. The prison records were great because there was detailed corroboration of all the stuff that Brandon said he did. So Mm -hmm. my biggest concern was at that very level, like is Brandon just kind of hamming up his criminal persona to make him sound like he's 
a bigger tough guy than he is because I think there was some of that. I talk about that in the book. Yeah. So that, that like he was trying to seem tough. That he, was part of his job. That was almost. his game. I mean, he Brandon was very savvy guy. What was so interesting to me about this relationship between Brandon and Aaron was that Aaron believed and I think rightly so to some extent that he needed a kind of tough guy and a hustler to protect his investment in this business. And there was times where Brandon came through, like when the deck got stolen and Brandon got all his boys with guns in a car and there was had a standoff in this shop on the east side of Buffalo and put an end to the rogue collectors. But Brandon also was an astute observer. And he, I think, understood that part of his value was the perception that he was this kind of powerful, tough, Boston alpha male. And mm-hmm. accordingly, he hammed it up. And in Vegas, there's this great scene um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the hotel penthouse where he's kind of, he goes into this kind of almost, it's like a mob movie where he starts pointing, that's my guy and, I'll, and I'd save you and I'd, I, if you need me, I'd come with a shovel. And, <laughs> yeah. and part of it was just like realizing, okay, this is his shtick. But it was also really important to me that I get his prison records and all of his police reports, and also his mother kept journals. Oh, right. And <laughs> um, in there too. I got his mother's journals um, that were like carefully written and dated about his different arrests and when he was like taking crack as a kid and, and when he busted his knuckles in a fight. And so between the prison records and his mom's journal, I started to really have peace of mind that, yes, he was inflating himself into this kind of caricature of like the Boston alpha male, but that the core stories that he were t- that he was telling me were true. Yeah. And so at what point did you feel like the the narrative of these two guys? Well, first, I mean, the topic itself of this sort of like debt trading is is really fascinating. Like this expository parts of the book are kind of amazing. I was just talking to someone over the weekend just about the mere fact that all of these things like trading huge amounts of debt is just literally like sending someone an Excel spreadsheet yeah. with like names and phone numbers and social security numbers in it. Like that's what it means yeah. is like a crazy fact. But in terms of the narrative, these two guys, they must have seemed like a great basis for something. But then at what point did you know that they weren't going to be like the Jay Kwan thing where yeah, it, that it, it wouldn't hold, it that just it would, would hold. like run out of string at some point? So there was. So, OK, so that's a, that's important. So when I'm if you remember, I wrote when my agent said, let's sell this book. I said, hold on a sec. I want to I want to see this through because I wanted to answer that very question. Could this sustain a full narrative? So the question was. Could I somehow get a hold of this package that was stolen? See, one component of the story was banker and bank robber go into business together, odd couple, need each other, like each other, don't trust each other. It's That's all solid. Mm-hmm. But where does it go from there? So I thought, okay, the narrative here should be what happens to this package of debt, this Excel spreadsheet, as you say, that gets stolen. Can I somehow follow that thing? from the bank to getting stolen to whatever else happens to it and kind of talk to people who touch this thing along the way. That was the kind of holy grail in my mind. If I could do that, I had a book. Mm -hmm. So I start doing my research and talking to different people that that I learned were involved with it one way or another, and I managed to get a hold of the actual spreadsheet, which was a start. Then I went down through the spreadsheet and I started contacting the debtors whose debt was stolen. They didn't even know their debt was stolen. Well, some of them did. Some of them knew that they had paid someone and that nothing, they never got any proof that they had paid and never showed up on their credit report, but they had right. no idea what happened. I actually told them, I know this is crazy to believe, but your debt was stolen and retrieved at gunpoint. And, you know, they, but how many of those people just hung up on you? Most it, of them, like 99% of them. These are people who are being called yes. all the time about these same debts. I mean, it sounded like a scam. If, 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 if someone called you and was like, I'm calling you because I've learned that there's something funny going on with your debt and I'm an investigative journalist and click. That happened about 500 times, which was dispiriting. But there was a few of them. Um, and I actually had some some students that were helping me make these calls too. We, uh-huh. had, we had like a little. I felt like I was running a collection center. <laughs> we had a list of 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 of, de- of debtors, and we were calling them. But instead of payment, we wanted their stories. It's amazing. You were literally working off the same, also the same we information working, as the you know it's, debt collection. I never thought of it that way, but it, that's exactly right. I had three students, 
and me, and we had a sh- basically a four-man shop, and we were calling these people. And they would call me and say, I got a woman, she's in Texas, she's a former Marine, she said she'd think about talking to you. And I called her, and I said, I'm going to FedEx you copy of my book. And then I got one or two people at the start. Um, this woman, Teresa, who was a great character, she was a former Marine, she wanted to clear up her credit card debt. She had, Her marriage had fallen apart. She'd gone into debt, and she'd paid someone she didn't know who and had no record of it. And I was like, I, I think I know who you paid, and I can tell you the story of what happened. I started telling her, and she had since gotten a job in Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. And so she had like a law enforcement perspective, and she was fascinated by what I'd found. And so she's like, okay, I'll participate. So boom, that was one piece. I had the debtor. Then what happened was the guy who ended up with the stolen debt, I knew who he was. And initially he wouldn't talk to me. But then I discovered that Jimmy – and Jimmy was the the subject of the New Yorker story that I had written three years before. Yeah, you went to high school with sort of. Yes. He was working for the guy who had the stolen debt. In fact, he was at that guy's shop when they were working the stolen debt. So that meant that Jimmy, whose story I already had, was connected to this narrative, which was a revelation. And then the guy – who whose shop had the stolen debt, who had the showdown with Brandon with guns, yeah, yeah. he said he would talk yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, I, I these pieces started to come. And there was another guy who who was one of Aaron's collectors, who is a, uh, a black Muslim polygamist um, who also ran a security business. And when they go to confront, when, when Brandon goes down to Buffalo to reclaim the stolen debt, he calls this guy. His name, his middle name is Shafiq. And Shafiq shows up with a bulletproof vest and a machete and a gun. And Brandon says, what's the knife for? And he says, the knife's for when I run out of bullets. And so then eventually I got Shafiq to talk to me. Now, bear in mind, this this plays out. Not all these I got to talk right away. It was over a period of time. But slowly all these players in this kind of crazy drama start agreeing to talk to me. And then I'm like, okay, this is a book because – Part of the book is just going to be all of the other lives. And, and, and it's so weird that you have the, the banker and the Boston street tough and the black, black Muslim polygamist and, um, and Jimmy and the debtor and who's, you know, the former Marine. And all of these very different lives are all linked by this Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. So when I realized I had that, then I got then I got like the tingle in the back of the spine. And then I was like, wow, this is potentially amazing um you know potentially you never know how it's all going to go out but you need to at least have that moment where you believe that you see a glimmer of something kind of incredible in the makings and if you can just somehow navigate your way through it you'll have something at the end yeah and it feels like there have there have to be enough pieces and elements you've got all these characters so that it doesn't feel like uh, this should have been a magazine story yes. kind of thing. Like it has to blow out in all these directions that are actually interesting. So you end up like following some debtors in Georgia that are also in the spreadsheet. And there's sort of these, there's these nice sort of like threads that you can go out and trace yes. and then come back. Now I will say not all of these elements were in place when I sold the book, even though I had written half of it. But a lesson that I learned too is that a lot of these people initially said no to me and said no sometimes multiple times. And I would just, I didn't want to be annoying, but I would let time pass. And I would just write them an email and say, hey, you know, I wanted to see how you're doing. I'm still working on this project. And slowly they they basically all came around and talked. And and then, you know, I started to feel like, okay, there's something, this is this is actually working. Yeah. I mean, if you were to just describe this book and, and the sort of plot to it and these incredible characters, I would say that sounds like something that could be optioned for a movie. But it kind of like started from that. Do you have the possibility of it ending up back there? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It's very weirdly like, it, it's like this whole process has been like toggling between fiction and nonfiction and then, you know, back again. And so when the this thing came out, we've gotten a bunch of interest from Hollywood and we're trying to kind of sift out. I mean, the one the one that would be, that's kind of my dream thing would be like if someone like Scorsese wanted to do it. That would that's, be like- Yeah, that'd be all right. That would be, that would be, you know, but I don't know. I mean, the thing is I've seen these things over the years. I've had a bunch of stuff option. Usually nothing happens. One reason I hope it gets made is that, you know, Brandon in particular, I think this is one of the reasons that he cooperated was that he was hoping that this would happen. Hmm. Even though I was very clear with him and tried to be that this, the people whose lives were inspired by this, like life rights are not often hugely lucrative. 
But this has always been the dance that's been going on here is that there's been this kind of like it's fiction or nonfiction or, or, or well, how, how is this going to take on its final form? Right. What's your what's your kind of business approach to uh, to stuff these days? I mean, given that this is your third book and I've always just in watching from afar, like you're like a, a cross medium person, like you do all these things for uh, for all things considered on NPR, you do this American life things is one of which we definitely have to talk about when the book comes out. This has happened with the previous book too. Like yeah. there's a lot of stuff that hits at once. You have a this American life piece. You have a piece in the New York times magazine. Do you sort of feel like you orchestrate all that and you are responsible for like making this thing successful or no, I do like this one was crazy too. Cause I worked with this guy, Felix Salmon who made a video game yeah, um, yeah. With a, where you could be the debtor or the deck collector. And it was like a role playing game. It was cool. They had like film noir graphics. It's a very simplified version of, of, of the way this all pans out, but you could, it's a good exercise if you're a debtor to see what works and what doesn't work in various scenarios in terms of whether you get stuck paying, especially when you get down to the courts. If you ask for evidence, often the case against you falls apart because it's just an Excel spreadsheet and the other side can't present the evidence. And that all plays itself out. That's what the This American Life And that's what the This American Life thing was about. Yeah, and that plays out in this video game. So, yeah, I mean, I always, um, I'm of the belief that you just got to throw as much stuff up at the wall and see what sticks. But also I think because... I do have fun with that aspect of it, that that I think of myself as just trying to tell stories in as many different ways as I can. I also have like a young adult fantasy series. I never saw myself as just doing one thing. I kind of like to try a bunch of different stuff. But yes, it's very deliberate. Like I'm thinking to myself, when the book is done, I want to do some radio stuff with this. I want to do a print excerpt. I want to do a video game. Um, you know, hopefully like we'll do some, maybe a, a movie will come of it and some of the things work out and some don't, but I think you need to try to think that way because books are hard to sell. And, um, and also I have just, it's just fun to try to think of as many different crazy things as you can to kind of make the story play itself out. Yeah. So you've done you've done a trilogy. Yeah, you with another author whose name escapes me at the moment. Yeah, Peter Kujawinski, and and we have another book coming out next fall in a completely new uh, concept. That to me is, uh, as far as I know, unique among journalists. Yeah, certainly that I've ever interviewed. That at some point in your career, you're like, actually, on the side, I'm gonna I'm gonna write some fantasy novels. Yeah, I know. I mean, I love it because it kind of helps. It kind of keeps you from taking yourself too seriously. I mean, like I'm like a guy who also writes about like iceberg fortresses and you know crazy <laughs> monsters and haunted forests. So the, the 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 genesis of that was that Kasha, my wife, took a year off to work on uh, not a year off after medical school. She she got a job at the Navajo reservation, working as a doctor, and kind of said to me like, "You and your buddy Peter have talked about doing some sort of fantasy book. Why don't you think this would be like your sabbatical? Why don't you do uh-huh. it?" And I was like, "Okay." And that she kind of almost called me on my bluff, and and then we wrote that book in that year. And Peter and I had a great time. We we're just like two 12-year-old boys. He was it's weird. He's in the Foreign Service. So I was. he was in Paris and I was in the Napa Reservation and we were Skyping. And But we wrote this book and I've been basically been doing that ever since. But I will say this. I feel like it's made me a better nonfiction writer because it's all plot. Mm-hmm. It's all plot turns and twists. It's all like, boom, boom, where's the story going? Don't let the narrative tension flag. With my fantasy books, I test them out on my kids. I like a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. <laughs> but I also test out my nonfiction on them. So like, I wrote this story about this temple where they found $20 billion worth of gold um, in, in the vaults beneath the temple. That's one of those stories where it's like you read a little thing about it, AP wire thing. And you're like, wow, that is fucking crazy. I'm going to, I should do that story. And then like, no, no, there's a bunch of writers are going to do that story. Probably know India better than me or whatever. And then six months later, no one's done it. And, yep. and I was thinking, no, really, I should do this story. And fortunately your story came out not long after. Otherwise I would have spent a lot of time, wasted a lot of time trying to like find the guy and you were already there. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I think you made the right call on that. It took like, I, the only reason I wrote the story is I was randomly living in that small city where this happened. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it was just like, I had the same thought as you. And then I was like, oh my God, it's this city it's, where I'm living in. But it still it was so hard to report in India. It took me four months. Like yeah. I couldn't have flown in and done it in two weeks. Now I feel better. You should. I mean, honestly, it would have been like, I mean, maybe you could have, but I think it would have been a a hard (laughs) slog. But while this was going on, my my, my kid was like, 
what's your story about? <laughs> I don't know. Kids are always asking questions like, who's that? And why is he a policeman? And like, why is the sky blue? And you, you can't answer all of them. But he was insistent. Like, why? What's your story about? So I was like, okay, what is my story about? And I was like, okay, my story is about this, temp- this temple when all these people gave this, these offerings to the God and the God owned all the gold, but they had the king who was the Maharaja and he was like the dad of the God. But he really had control. And then people said the king was stealing the gold from the God. And I'm like telling like a parable basically. Yeah. And I'm done telling it and I'm like, holy shit, that's my story. Like I literally went back and scrapped the outline that I had written, like what I had written for the thing and realized that I hadn't, just boiled it down to like what what is like the storytelling here i was like oh this is for the new yorker it has to be what whatever thing i thought it had to be uh-huh. and so after that happened i like it was kind of revelatory and i realized wow i should be like running these stories by my seven-year-old and my five-year-old and just like seeing if they can understand them because i feel i feel at heart like any story no matter how complicated, you should be able to tell a seven-year-old in a way that they understand. And if you can't, at least for me, that probably means that either A, I'm telling the story wrong, or B, it's not really a story. What did you tell him? Uh, You don't have to go through the whole book, but I'm curious, like, what is the fundamental story of the book that you tell your seven-year-old? Yeah. So I'll say... The most recent book. Yeah. I'll say, okay, these guys buy and sell this stuff this very special kind of paper. I don't get into the whole bit about debt because then that gets very abstract for mm-hmm. a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. So I just, it's called paper. They get it. And I say, I'll say like, yeah, there's this, there's this guy that buys this paper, but he knows there's a lot of bad guys out there and he knows that the police aren't going to help him. So he meets this other guy who's used to be a robber, but, you know, um, <laughs> And he doesn't fully trust this robber because the robber has this past where he's been to jail and he talks kind of rough and he fights. But he knows he needs someone to help protect him because there's no police around. And he feels that even though the robber's kind of rough around the edges that, you know, and yeah, I take it yeah. from there. And and my five-year-old and seven-year-old are kind of nodding their heads and whatever. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's not like the blueprint for the whole book. But in some ways, like, there it is. Like, there's the book right there. Like... That that's it, and then you put the other stuff around it. But at, at core, there's something simple. There's a fundamental narrative tension there, and and you can dress it up and put in all the kind of subtlety and nuance. But at core, that's the that's what's tweaking and driving the plot. Yeah, yeah, ah, that is fascinating. <laughs> um, I do want to ask you about that. This American Life. That, that This American Life story, you've done several This American Life stories, but one of them is like uh, so popular on This American Life, it's in your like bio, even yeah. like a short version of your bio. It's yeah, like, I know. He did the seventh most popular This American Life story. And it really is, I feel like it's like all the best of this, what This American Life can do. And it's this story called Switched at Birth, uh, which a lot of people will hopefully have heard if they haven't, they should go listen to it. But I kind of wanted to just go back to that and find out how you found out about those people and how you got them to talk or just say a little bit about what it's about. Yeah. So like other journalists, I'm sure you write something and people will come to you with other ideas. I read this story of yours and I think you might be interested in this. So that's how it came. There was a guy, his name is Greg Williams, and he sent me an email and he had read one of my stories. It was about a musician. And he said, you know, I'm from Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and I know this really crazy story about two girls that were switched at birth. Are you interested? I mean, the idea of like people being switched at birth is not that novel uh, that I immediately jumped up, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have work at the time. Basically, like I was hungry. Um, And so I said, okay, why not? Let me make a call or two. Let's just kind of go down that road a little bit and see what's happened, what it's like. So he gives me the name of one of the kids in the story. um, And they start telling me their version of what happened and they said, yeah, my sister was switched to birth with this other girl and and just we only discovered recently. And They're like in uh, their 40s. They're in their 40s like, and they're like, of course, the one mother knew right from day one that she had the wrong child, but she didn't say anything for 40 years and she just made sure that they lived close by one another so that she could watch her biological daughter grow up. He says this like 30 minutes into the conversation. Bearing the lead of the story, you know, <laughs> deeply bearing the lead of, of this story. And I said, could you just say that again? And he said, yeah. And he repeated it. And 
I realized that this was kind of incredible. And, and what happened was these two girls were switched right at the hospital. And the one mother, Mrs. Miller, she knew when she got home, she felt certain that this was not her child. And she tells her husband, and her husband doesn't believe her. He, she thinks that he's like delirious from giving birth and, and kind of, it just sounds fantastical and he refuses to believe her. But she's certain. And so she makes these elaborate efforts to stay close with this other family in the same small town so she can watch her child grow up in another family's household. And the, the switch was meaningful because one family was like all blonde and cheerful and a little bit better off financially and the other family was much bigger and dark-haired and brooding and yeah. money more challenged. So the fact that there was this mistake for many reasons made a huge difference. And then when they were 40, finally, the father who never believed comes back and, and tell, he sees her on the street or at an event and he tells his wife, whoa, you were right. And then they tell them and, then, and that's really almost the starting point of the story. Yeah. So... I'm finding this all out, and so I call up Sarah Koenig, who's now doing. She's now doing the serial, which is this really yeah, you know, yeah. popular. Um, great. No spoilers. So I tell Sarah, and Sarah's like, "Yes, this is good. Let's do it." So I went. Me and Sarah went on this road trip to Prairie du Chien for like a week together, and we one at a time visited. We visited the one mother, and then the other mother, and then the one daughter, and then we end up at this family wedding, and. Uh, this doesn't really make it into the story, but the family wedding ends up being kind of a logical place to be because everyone in the family is there and it's yeah. at the wedding. We ask the people that are getting married, of course, like, can we do this <laughs> in the background of your wedding? And we're kind of one at a time taking family members out of the after wedding party and interviewing them about what's happened. And some members of the family are totally into it and some are not happy at all that we're at this wedding. Yeah, We were, we were kind of thrown into the thick of it. But they wanted – like people were – I think that enough people thought that it was crazy that this had been unspoken for so long because even though the one mother – well, she – no one believed her. But she would occasionally tell people in this small town, that's really my daughter. So there's all these whisperings of yeah, people like in this town. secret. Yeah. So all – the family members were like – a lot of them were like, we got to talk about this. And then when uh, when the final thing was put together, did it feel to you like – this is this is incredible. This is incredible. This is like a once in a lifetime story, which has turned out to kind of be. Yeah. Or did it feel like, ah, eh, good story. Eh, we we got that one. First of all, I must say it was an amazing experience to report with someone who was so good at their job. She had an. I did the most of the interviews. It was me and my, it was my rapport, or whatever. I was able to connect with these folks, but she was the architect who assembled this very cool way of of each woman telling their story and yet the story progressing. Uh huh. But when it was done, I thought it was good, but I didn't think it was going to be like one of their top stories of all time or that it was going to generate like, you know, if when I meet people, like if they know one thing I've done, it's usually that story. I didn't see it at the time, but I remember really well, like when it aired, we were up in the Adirondacks with my dad's whole family and it was the full hour of the show Yeah, and it played and afterwards you know, people were like really choked up and were saying were, it just affected them. And I and it kind of affected me, too. Like I on a hearing it in, in the airwave that first time. And then I was like, wow, I guess this was something kind of, yeah, as you say, kind of once in a lifetime that all these pieces came together. And I think they were happy. I think that there was some hurt, of course, inevitably that like this was all aired. It's not going to be smooth. Right. But yeah. yeah, I think that the piece succeeded in kind of being a thoughtful rendering of what had happened to them. Yeah, it was I hadn't listened to it in years, probably since it originally aired, and I listened to it, you know, the other day, and it was even knowing exactly what happened and kind of remembering even, it's just very captivating to listen to. You know, it's one of these things about stories that they were ready to tell their story. I think the most poignant moment in the whole thing was there was this one woman, the mother, who knew all along or suspected that she had the wrong child and never said anything. Because everyone's like, how could you not say anything? And I got the sense she really needed to explain. Like, I, my husband wouldn't believe me, and my, I, I pushed it to the point where I thought my marriage was coming apart. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you think anything good has come, like, even though you didn't say anything, like, was there anything good that came from this? And she said about this, they were the kind of dark haired brooding family and they got this like blonde, very cheerful girl. And 
she said, yeah, the, the girl they got, her name was Marty, and she said, Marty brought happiness to our home. Yeah, it was this moment where, I don't know, this woman was just ready to talk about it. And I think that, again, like timing is so important in these things. Yeah. So, yeah. I am curious, you're in the process of trying to help the book succeed. Yeah. Doing a lot of stuff. At what point are you thinking about presumably like another book or like what you're going to jump to next? So like I'm running around like crazy. I, I It's true. I was at the Texas Book Festival yesterday and I'm like, I, this is, I'm, you know, four events today and, you know, crazy tomorrow, <laughs> which is just, just to say that like they make you do every, every hoop you can jump through to sell books and yeah. that's all good. It's and not fun. a bad thing. No, it's yeah. not. It's good. having no events. For Absolutely. Sure. No, it's good. But I think that it, you know, you said at the beginning about like, when we we're talking about the story with my great uncle about like what was the moment like was it when it all screened and I and I said no it was the the moment that I heard him tell that when I showed up at the friend's house and he said this is the secret room where we built where we hid your great uncle like that was the electric moment and I think that I realized about a week ago that I need to start looking for a new story that this is like this story is at its end, you know, that mm-hmm. and it's been at its end for a while. I've done the radio version. I've done the video game. I've done the, the print version. Like it's, I need to find a new story. And I started to, there's a few things that I'm thinking about. And I started putting out some calls and talking to some folks about, you know, and it like revived me. It was like, okay, like that's why I'm doing this, you know? And so I think that, you would think that maybe the answer is like, oh, I, I need to take like a, a month off and just do nothing, and you know. But I think the opposite is true for me at least. Like I need to start reporting another story right away that I feel excited about something new and and have another narrative. So I've got three like f- half baked ideas that I'm kind of going to flush out and um, hopefully be like well underway by the end of November and kind of not like. I don't know, overly obsessing over the book I just wrote. Well, great. As long as none of those ideas are ones that are on my idea list, I really look forward to reading those. Likewise. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jake Halpern for uh, coming into the studio. Check out his book, Bad Paper. Uh, It's fantastic. And uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. And our intern this week is Rachel Mabe. And uh, our sponsors, bonobos.com. And uh, as always, Tiny Letter. We'll see you next week. <laughs>